Hello and welcome to the Ireland on the Fly podcast about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland. As fly anglers, we have become all too aware of the environmental dangers and unwanted consequences of fish farming. And what was once touted as an answer to more productive fish production has now been proved to be anything but. Scotland is a case in point. The west coast of Scotland in particular, where salmon and sea trout runs have practically disappeared. Much like what we've also seen with sea trout in Connemara. And Loch Marie was once the jewel in the crown for Scottish loch fishing. But since the 1980s and the arrival of fish farms nearby, its fish numbers have been decimated. So, for this latest episode, we wanted to highlight how quickly a fishery can collapse, the effects on the fishing, the environment and the economy, and also find out about some possible green shoots that are now re-emerging. And we spoke to local gilly Owen McLean to get his perspective on the changes that he has seen in his lifetime. But first time, it's such a big topic that I'm wary of trying to present this one episode as being a definitive answer or a case study. But Owen certainly has some interesting insights worth listening to. Yeah, definitely. I I don't think, as you said there, that we can cover this in one episode. But um, I think just first of all, getting Owen on to talk about it is really good because it gives his perspective and his perspective as a, as a guide slash gilly on Loch Marie. And it's really interesting to hear his point of view as somebody who worked the lake for so long um, as a guide and to hear how much uh, Loch Marie, how important, I should say, Loch Marie was to the Western Ross area where he grew up in. Um, I just chatting there. I remember Loch Marie from years ago, uh, reading about it, both in trout and salmon and books that I had. And it really was a fantastic fishery. Um, got some really good sea trout in this really big sea trout. I mean, Owen, when we hear from Owen later, I mean, the record sea trout was absolutely phenomenal. So it really was, as he calls it, the jewel in the crown of Scottish sea trout fishing. But I think what we're looking at here is, you know, there's no doubt, but there are similarities between the case of the West Coast of Scotland and what we've seen here on the West Coast of Ireland. And this is why it was really good to, to have a chat with Owen. Have you ever been over to Loch Marie or over that part? No, I haven't. And I, I was saying it when actually when I was talking to Owen, it's it's one place I didn't get to. Uh, I covered Scotland for a year uh, when I was on the road with Hardys, and I got to see most places. But unfortunately, there was um, there was <laughs> there was no uh, account on up near Western Ross, um, so I didn't get to pass by it. I got to drive by most places that I could just to have a look at them. Uh, I fished further up. In Durness, but I've never fished in Wester Ross. Uh, so it's small bucket list, um, particularly as we go on with what said at the end, the end of the, the show here. So yeah, I'd love to. It, lo- it looks fantastic. It looks fantastic. And there's actually it's really interesting because there's a lot of similarities in terms of the, the fishing between up there in Scotland and the western side with the lakes and what you see in Ireland and, uh, as well, isn't there? Like I'm thinking dapping, for example. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing to uh, to chat about it. I mean there are, I mean, like, I mean, I suppose it's where lock style comes from. It was both Scotland and Ireland, but um, and that's in the fly fishing. Dapping was very much, uh, very much a, a, a method, a good method in in Western Ross and up in Scotland. Now, interestingly, there is one major difference in, in dapping in Scotland on the sea trout. They dapped artificials much more so than Ireland. Whereas here, where we dap in, even when I was dapping as a young lad for the sea trout. It was generally Daddy Longlegs. I would leave the light on in the in the bathroom the night before, and it opened, and you just collect the Daddy Longlegs in the morning. 
dispatch them and throw them into a matchbox. Or if there was grasshoppers, then you'd have a, a big jar with holes put on the top of it. So we always use live insects. But Scotland, they use the artificial, the Loch Ordi. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Famous Scottish fly. Yeah. Like about, like if you're dressing it, and this is back to fly dressing, there'd be about, could be up to eight hackles in it. And dressed in a size eight. And some of the more elaborate ones actually had a flailing treble from it. Right? So you'd dress it on maybe, let's say, a size eight hook. And before you'd ever think, you would um, lash on a little small 12 or 14 treble to it. And because it was so bushy and everything, the treble would almost be hidden until the trout got his jaws around it. And then you, you struck home. But yeah, <laughs> that was the main difference um, between the two. But everything else was the same. The dappin was very, very big there. And it's one of those, you wonder, like, did it just develop separately or, you know, because of the kind of, you know, the closeness between, you know, the West Coast of Scotland and Ireland, I wonder, you know, in terms of migration and ideas traveling back and forth, you'd wonder, like, wouldn't you? Yeah, you would, actually. I'd say you're right there, definitely, with the migration, ideas going um, back and forth. You know, definitely, they would have had some form of travel between the two, particularly amongst anglers. And, you know, news news would travel fast even back then. So I imagine <laughs> that, that was a lot of... And also, you, you, did, you I suppose, you resorted to... You fished the environment the best you could and dapping from a drifting boat was successful and the lakes I won't say that similar but there were big open lakes and it was a a fruitful method <laughs> if it worked you'll keep doing yeah. it yeah 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 um but back to I suppose the reason why we wanted to do this episode as well is because of you know I suppose we saw the, the kind of the decline on the west coast and Loch Marie in particular I suppose and if you look at Loch Marie as a case study of some some fishery that was so well known so prolific and then you know saw its numbers of fish decimated um i suppose look we've seen it with the west coast in connemara here uh, in ireland but it's also a solitary lesson that it can still go on and you know in other fisheries around and i suppose what we want to do is just really highlight isn't it in terms of people's experiences and say look you know, yeah it's the same over here as well and and it could be similar again it could be yeah i mean i think I think what, what prompted us to do this episode was probably following through from when we Joe on, Joe Crane. And when he talked about, you know, Joe was very fortunate. And if you haven't listened, if you haven't listened to that episode, I suggest go and listen to it again. It's really good. Joe was fortunate to fish the, um, the Connemara sea trout fisheries when they were still on song. And, you know, unfortunately, he's witnessed the demise of it. And got us thinking that we're like, Let's let's bring this further and, and see the similarities that have happened in other in other countries, yeah. for example. And then maybe as a potential warning for fisheries that are we still have, that you know we don't want to go down this route. You know exactly. And interesting for people to listen out for this is you know there's a potential sea change here. There is potential change happening as well. Um, and we're going to follow up with this with a more scientific kind of um, insights mm. as well at a future episode. So again, we're kind of looking at this, this is maybe the environment, the culture, the mindset, the thinking, what we saw in Scotland in terms of the open embrace of fish farms is changing. And are we going to see something similar in Ireland? And I think definitely um, we could learn a lot from that as well. One thing that was interesting though, Airdara was just at the end when uh, Owen was talking that uh, he was saying that in the last season or so, that they have noticed a couple of more sea trout and he had a bit of success and he, he talks about it. And this has coincided with 
no cage is now in Loch U. And he's, you know, he's, he, he doesn't say that, you know, he sees that they're back or anything. But you would kind of hope that maybe there's a bit of light at the end of the tunnel. And maybe, maybe things can happen and there can be change. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's too early to say, obviously, in, in Loch Marie's case or any other case. But uh, it was interesting that he did mention that. Yeah. And I think if anything is, we're seeing if change can be brought about. Yeah, um, definitely. At a macro, at a, you know, political and a kind of a strategic point of view, then hopefully then from talking to owners, what we're seeing is maybe then the potential is that we will actually then see a positive change in terms of fish numbers. Um, won't be back to the way it was, but I tell you, look, let's hear from Owen now. Um, he'll get into a bit more detail about this, and it is some really interesting uh, perspective he has on it, with, you know, a lifetime um, spent gilling and fishing on Loch Marie. And I first asked Owen what made Loch Marie so special. Well, Loch Marie is the fourth biggest loch in Scotland. Up until the mid-70s, Loch Marie was one of the most important uh, sea trout lochs in Scotland. At that time, all the systems in Westeros were stocked with salmon par and sea trout par uh, through the 60s into the early 70s. That was to keep the fish numbers up. Uh, that stopped because I think it was through expense more than anything else. Um, and then we did see a decline in both the salmon and sea trout numbers. A then fish farming came on the go. And then we saw a very rapid decline in sea trout and salmon numbers. And by the mid-80s, Loch Marie was no longer the most important loch in Scotland for sea trout and salmon fishing. Give us an example on like how many people would have been working full-time on the loch in its heyday? Like? Well, when I gillied on Loch Marie when I was still in school, and at that time there would have been 10 gillies uh, from Loch Marie Atel. Um, so that would be 10 boats fishing from mid-April through till the 16th of October. So it was seasonal jobs, yes, but uh, the people that were gillying would have had other jobs to keep them going through the winter. So it was Loch Maria Tell alone. In its heyday between, well, with the size of the loch, it's 14 and a half miles long and two miles wide. There would have been upwards of 20 boats fishing on Loch Marie uh, every day from mid-April through to the 16th of October. That's a lot of uh, employment in an area such as Westeros where employment wasn't easy to get, uh, let's say, 30 or 40 years ago. And, of course, as well, you would have had the kind of local economic benefits, I presume, of anglers coming up, staying locally, you know, spending money locally, all that kind of stuff. Well, um, two of the hotels, Loch Marie Hotel and Kinlochue Hotel, which is at the, Kinlochue Hotel is at the east end of the loch. Loch Marie Hotel is actually on the shores of Loch Marie, and it was classed as a fishing loch right back till possibly the late 1800s. Uh, it was predominantly a fishing hotel and no disrespect to money or anything like that, but it was all people from a wealthy background that took up the fishing, fishing on Loch Marie because they could afford to pay the hotel dues and the fishing dues. Um, it was bringing a lot of money into the local economy. Um, 
it was mainly local employment because let's say for argument's sake, um, a university student looking for a summer job, uh, gillying on Lochmarie wasn't a suitable job for them because if they didn't have the experience of the loch, then they couldn't work as a gillie on Lochmarie. Uh, so the people that worked on Loch Marie had worked worked on there year after year after year. Predominantly, the gillies were all local lads. That's right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Who owned the fishing rights? Most of the land around Loch Marie uh, has riparian owners. But the Solemn of Loch actually belonged to Gairloch Estates, which was the Mackenzies of Gairloch. And the Mackenzies of Gairloch owned land in Wester Ross. Uh, right back to the 14th century. Um, all the riparian owners around the loch had the right to fish on Loch Marie, uh, but Gairloch Estates still held on to the solemn of the loch. What do you mean by the solemn of the loch? The solemn of the loch, if you take, for instance, a, um, there are 30 islands on Loch Marie. Now, that's part of the solemn of the law. They are still owned by Gerloch Estates. The law, it's a difficult one to put across because at one time, the Mackenzies would have owned all the land around Loch Marie. Mm. When they sold off the land, uh, when they saw, sold off the land surrounding the law, they kept ownership of the law itself, but still allowed the Rypania riparian owners to have fishing on Loch Marie or the fishing right on Loch Marie. Yeah. And it, it, but it's right to say, Owen, like Marie was a jewel in the crown. It was, yes. Uh-huh. And for dapping, there was no other loch in Scotland could match it. Yeah, I was going to go into that to ask you because like I'm from a place here where dapping is very much, very much di- and was huge here and still plays a big part here. But I, I remember growing up and hearing about, uh, they do they dap in Scotland too. Do they? Yeah, yeah. there's a place called Loch Marie and, 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 and they dap there for big sea trout. So That's I am right. growing up hearing those stories, you know? Uh-huh. Well, the biggest, the biggest sea trout ever caught in Loch Marie was 16 and a half pounds. <laughs> and was that caught on the dap? That was caught on the dap. Uh, your biggest sea trout now might be two and a half to three pounds. Right. When was the 16-pounder caught on? 1956, I think it was, if I remember. I don't remember because I, I was just one year of, one years of age then. But uh, there's oh, come on, surely, surely you must. <laughs> but the biggest sea trout I ever caught would have been six and a half pounds. Now, the biggest salmon caught on the law in my lifetime was 32 and a half pounds. That was not You know, it's was not that a, fly? It was a big fish. Big fish, big fish or a lock. Was that on the fly or? Uh, or on the trail? I've never fished with anything else but fly. Right. And my biggest one, I was actually brought up in a private estate at the head of the U system. And that's where I did all my fishing. Right. The head of the U system starts possibly about 28 miles from where Loch Marie actually flows into the sea. So it's a fair bit up. And you said there now Loch Marie had 10 hotels, or t- excuse me, 10, 10 boats. 
So a couple of others then had, had, like you said, a total probably of 20 boats. So there would have been 10 other boats distributed through the other riparian owners, was it? That's right. There would be 10 boats out of Loch Marie alone. So that would be 20 fishers every day. Yeah. And that, uh, when you put that into the hospitality side of the hotel, that's a very good earner for, for any hotel. Well, a lot of these fishers would be booking for a holiday, a fortnight in a, a, every year. Yeah, so they'd be coming. And as you said, like, um, I, I remember looking at it before on a, on a piece I'd spotted on YouTube, uh, to get to get a spot, um, it was kind of kind of hard to to get onto it because people kept booking every year. It was almost like what we'd say here, dead men's shoes, almost. Aye, that's right. Somebody had yeah. to die before you got fishing in Loch Marie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because everybody would book following the following year. Or whatnot. That's right. Before they left at the end of a season, they booked their following year. Yeah, and that yeah, happened. Well. That actually happened with a lot of fishing in Wester Ross, way back in the. 60s and 70s. It's very interesting. I will go back onto it there. You mentioned I wasn't aware that there was hatcheries in the Western Ross functioning back in the 60s and 70s. There was a, and I actually remember the sea trout and salmon smolts arriving in the old metal milk churns. And that's, I think, I think expense came into it. And that's why the landowners actually stopped uh, stocking the systems. Right, so this was actually funded by the, the riparian landowners. That's exactly right. Wow. Do you think that as well may have played, uh, had an impact on the law? I'm not sure. When they stopped stocking the system, you did see the numbers go down slightly. Yeah. But not to an extent where the fishing would have been ruined. There's a better correlation there of when the fishing was ruined when something appeared in the bay. Isn't it? That's right. Yeah, but then when fish farming came on the go, after a few years of fish farming, you could see this the sea trout and salmon numbers depleting. It is it is very noticeable. I've heard you say before of when the fish farms appeared, that the numbers, uh, the drastic downfall of numbers on the loch. That's exactly right. Yes. Yeah. At one time, I didn't really believe it, but then when I saw fish coming into the loch with a uh, having passed fish farms, when I saw fish coming onto the loch with a number of sea lice, because fish always came into the loch even before fish farms with sea lice on them. Mm. But the numbers of sea lice on the fish coming into the loch after fish farms came on the go was, well, it was quite ridiculous in actual fact. Oh, and just take us back to, uh, it was in the 1980s when the fish farms um, first started appearing. Is that right? That's right. Uh-huh. Um, so they were obviously being pushed as kind of, you know, good for the local economy, you know, that this is a way to kind of, you know, generate kind of, you know. Income. Yeah. Possibly initially, everybody was sold to the fact that it was bringing employment to the areas. But now when you consider very few fish farms in Scotland, in fact, none at all, are actually owned by United Kingdom firms. Maui, the the biggest fish farm, company in Scotland at the moment, Maui, I think is Norwegian owned. The way they feed the fish farms now with the big well boats, that's done away with employment. So now employment, the fish farms, fish farms cannot come away with the excuse that they're creating a lot of employment because the number of employees with the well boats coming in has gone down quite dramatically. It's become more automated. 
That's right, because these yeah. well boats just, well, they're time automated and they just feed the fish when they think the fish have to be fed. Uh, what about the argument about oh, income to the economy? You know, we're saying, you know, that this brings money into the economy. Isn't it great now for what fish farms are actually doing, making, you know. I don't think that excuse can be given now. And I suppose on you could argue like, you know, the first few years, you know, the science mightn't have been there. We mightn't have been aware of it. And, you know, like I said, people kind of welcome fish farms for what they could potentially do. There's no excuses nowadays in terms of what we know, you know, in terms of the evidence, in terms of the science. And yet fish farms in general will still choose to bury their head in the sand. They remind me a bit of kind of maybe the, the tobacco industry or the oil industry is that they're trying to mitigate and minimize the actual damage that is done. And they're still doing that to this day. They are, yes. But uh, um, when we think of a fish farm, uh, if we've escapees from a fish farm, and that gets mixed up with the what's left of the wild population, then that's of detriment to the wild population of fish. But uh, in another story, the local populace of Wester Ross uh, made such a song and a dance that the fish farms that were uh, in Loch Yew, where, let's say, the sea trout and salmon going into the Loch Marie system, they actually come into Loch Yew, which is the sea loch. With a uh, local lobbying, these fish farms now are no longer in existence. So there are no fish farms in Loch Yew, which is the main sea loch, which fed, feeds Loch Marie. And in the last couple of years, a... Uh, in fact, I, I retired from Gillying and Loch Marie this season. But in the last couple of years, uh, there has been a, a slight no- noticeable increase in the number of fish coming into the loch. It'll never get back to what it was. But there is an improvement in what's coming into the loch since the disappearance of the fish farms. That's really, that's really interesting, actually. I, was, I wasn't aware that the... The farm had been removed from Loch Hugh. See, we had a body in Westeros called Westeros Fisheries, and that was that's funded by all the local landowners. Now, this is not me getting political in like that, but the local landowners made nothing out of fish farms. So they had to look at what we, they were making money out of, and what they were making money out of was a um, fishing on the loch and fishing in the in the river. Yeah. That's where they were making their money. So they set up a Westeros a fisheries to look at everything that was happening with the fish population in Westeros. And I'm quite sure they lobbied government as well as the local populace, but the landowners would have lo- lobbied the local the government to get rid of the fish farms in, in Loch Hugh. Gosh. And that's what, that's what has happened now. Hmm. So, so tell me this then, on in terms of... Doesn't so you have Loch Hugh, but beyond that in the bay, then do you have much bigger fish farms, is that right? That are still affecting the fish coming into Loch Marie, is that right? There are ones in Loch Broom and ones in Loch Torridon. So that's a Loch U is actually in between these two lochs. Loch Torridon doesn't feed the U system, nor does Loch Broom. Any fish going into either Loch Torridon or Loch Broom are going into other river systems. So I'm not sure how they have improved or not improved. 
But I suppose what I'm trying to get at is with the removal of the fish farm from Loch U, is there other fish farms that are still affecting Loch Marie? No, I don't think so. No. As we know, well, we, we know ourselves, the sea trout and salmon follow the shoreline till they get to wherever they're going. I'd be surprised if any of the indigenous Loch Marie sea trout and salmon are actually going into any of the other lochs. So that's a hopeful at least then, isn't it? Owen, in the it sense is. of... I suppose in all the years I've been involved in Loch Marie, I suppose that's the most positive thing I've seen in the last 30 or 40 years. So could you say yourself, like anecdotally yourself, that you've noticed your catches over the last year or two, that you, like you said, the, you might get a two or three pound sea trout now, but you could actually go out on Loch Marie now and probably hope to catch a sea trout when, when conditions were right. That's right. I had two very, very good fishermen out this year. They were from Caithness, and they were pure fly fishers. And one of them, he wouldn't use any of the flies I was recommending. He was using flies that he'd actually tied himself that were very that successful flies. That happens to me too when I'm gilling. Did you just keep, sure did you keep your mouth? Did you keep your mouth shut? <laughs> <laughs> But I had to, well, I had to agree with him. He had three <laughs> sea trout for that day on one of his own flies. And the biggest was biggest was actually three and a quarter pounds. It's a while since I've seen a fish that size in Loch Marie. So I know that's not a huge improvement, but it's actually an, an improvement as to what was being caught before. It was, because I, I believe at, at, at one stage there, let's say a couple of years ago, let's say when uh, the operations were still going on at Loch U, like you, chances of catching a sea trout were very, very small, weren't they? They were, yes. And in actual fact, you chaps will know, a, uh, we always looked at anything around a pound as being a finnock. Mm, yeah. Because, a, but then with the depletion of the sea trout numbers, if anybody caught a sea trout of a pound, they called it a pound. Uh, uh, sorry, a sea trout. Yeah, yeah. Whereas yeah. 30 years ago, that would have been called a finnock. Mm. And it's only in the last couple of years that fish that were the size of fish that were being caught maybe 20 or 30 years ago are now beginning to appear in the loch again. Not to any, not in any great numbers, I might add. When was the fish farm removed from Loch U then? Uh, that must be four years ago now. So basically, so what we're hoping is that, from what you're saying, is that, fingers crossed, we obviously won't be like the way it was, but nah. give it time that the lock will start to um, hopefully come back to some better shape. Like, Well, you would hope so, but you're right about the science and all the rest of it. Do we know that there is no other underlying fact out in the sea that's damaging the fish stocks. I think we can be fairly certain that fish farms have done a lot of damage, but is there something else happening out in the wider world that we don't know about? Just um, I'll talk to me a bit about the kind of wider kind of, because, you know, what I'd be reading and hearing is, you know, obviously people talking about the demise of sea trout on the western coast of Scotland, obviously to do it, you know, the correlation between uh, fish farms arriving. Uh-huh. The sense I get is the removal of the fish farm at Loch U is a bit of an outlier, that there's still a huge fish I, farm developments going on. I, well, I don't know 
I don't know possibly enough, but I think that's possibly the first one that's been removed. I can't actually remember hearing of any other one being removed. I just wonder, though, are we starting? To, are you starting to see in, in Scotland and with the politicians a bit of a sea change of mindset that they're kind of actually starting to listen and look at the environment more as opposed to just the pure economic facts and numbers? As you know, Scotland, we have, a, we have an independent government in waiting at the moment. I'd be very surprised if the party that are in power at the moment are not looking on the salmon and sea trout as one of the iconic species species of the Scottish tourism industry. They will now know as well that the vast majority of fish farms in Scotland are not owned by Scottish companies. At one time, a lot of fish was exported down into Billingsgate for forward uh, marketing onto other parts of the world. That is no longer happening. Uh, A lot of the fish is actually processed on the fish farm site uh, and then transported into Europe by boats. So it's not even hitting the, the, the UK mainland? <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't think it's actually, it's a difficult one, but I don't think the fish farming industry is taking a lot of economy and money back into the United Kingdom. But the other thing is, well, I was local, locally born and bred to the area. So, and a lot of my friends worked in fish farming. It was very, very funny that I didn't get any flat from them. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. They know I'm speaking the truth. Yeah. Yeah. And interestingly, yeah. I'm just interested on that on your, like, were they have been anglers as well who, who were working in the fish farms? Yes, there would have been quite a lot of people that I know working on fish farms that were actually anglers as well. So did they feel conflicted? Yes. And if you were to look at who is employed on the fish farms nowadays, there are very, very few local people. It is usually people that have moved into the area and they're looking for work. I don't actually know many pe- local people working on the fish farms now. Yeah, usually cheaper labour is, uh, is brought in from abroad. That's right. Uh-huh. Yeah. You see it in Ireland too. Um, oh, just maybe finally on this, you might just, for Irish anglers listening to this, you know, We've seen the demise of kind of the sea trout fisheries in, in Connemara and the west of Ireland, but, you know, Loch Coran in Kerry is under a lot of pressure. Do you think what happened to Loch Marie is a warning? See, nobody can argue how important Loch Marie was as a, a sea trout and salmon loch because it's been known going back over the centuries or the decades anyway, just how important Loch Marie was. And... Um, the East Coast rivers haven't had the same effect as the West Coast rivers in Scotland. The sea trout and salmon numbers have gone down slightly, but I've got a friend who gillies on the tea, and I never he's been gilling on the tea since he left school, and I never hear him complaining that he's not his guests are not getting the fish they want. And a, one of these fishermen I had out, one of these fishermen fishermen from Caithness that I had out this year. Uh, he fishes quite a lot, lot of the East Coast Caithness rivers, and he's quite happy with the catches he's getting there. But that's it. Oh, like for people listening, what's the difference between the West Coast and the East Coast of Scotland? It's the fish numbers have gone down slightly on the East Coast, but not to the extent on as they have on the West Coast. 
but then there's no fish farms on the east coast of Scotland. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, so, maybe that's a very maybe that's a very tepid argument, but that's the way I look at it. Yeah, but yeah, then's <laughs> the facts. <laughs> if it quacks, the like a, if it quacks like a duck, swims like a duck. I don't know. He, uh, maybe I'm too emotive about it because he, I started fishing before I, I, when I was in primary school. And I suppose I've taken it worse than most people have, local people, uh, just because I've had that long a uh, relationship with the fishing industry. I think, Owen, you're more than entitled to be emotive about it. In all fairness. Well, that's right. I suppose I should be, yes. yes. And what I would say to that, Owen, is it's it's people like yourself who are passionate, uh-huh. who are the actual real kind of protectors of yeah. the environment. It's I see it with flight with you know, say with take salmon or brown trout in Ireland. To me, uh-huh. the best kind of ambassadors or the best people to look out for it are the fly anglers themselves. Because yes, they true. have an emotion and a passion about it. Like uh-huh. Just before we uh, wrap it up, there's a couple of things. Uh, when I was chatting to you, but uh, you were mentioning that you still do a bit of brown, there's a bit of brown trout fishing around you. I do, yes, but I'm not sure what the weather was like with you in Ireland this year, but we had a very, very cold summer. And one of the best lofts that I fish is at 1,500 feet. It, the temper just, it just didn't rise at all. So I... Uh, it's the first year in a lot of years I haven't fished it, but it's a brilliant loch. Uh, and do you fish it from the shore or from a boat? No, I fish it from the shore. Yeah. And they don't like a sinking line. Uh, they don't like a floating line. They like a sinking line, which oh, is wow. a lot more exciting than using a, a floating line. I can get them up to oh, just under three pounds. Oh, brilliant. There's every chance you'll always get a fish a pound or a pound and a quarter there. Uh, the smallest I've ever caught on that loch is a pound and eight ounces. Wow. Well, and that's interesting. And it's sinking lines that you use, yeah? It is, yes, a sinking line. And what are you using? Are you using traditional wet flies or are you on mini lures yes. or what? Uh, I'm pretty ingrained in them. Uh, I'll <laughs> usually have a black panel, a teal blue and silver and a Peter Ross. Right. They're kind of, uh, they'd, be, they'd be well-known sea trout flies for us here. Well, they're brilliant sea trout flies, but they're good yeah. brown trout flies as well. Yeah, wow. Oh, that sounds that's a, that sounds absolutely brilliant because I I have a great passion for hill locks and everything. And when I got my first car years Hi. years ago, I had uh-huh. a copy of Peter O'Reilly's book, The Trout and Salmon Locks of Ireland, and I used uh-huh. to tick off every lake in Connemara that I could drive to and fish. That you could fish on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and like to have we had a couple of locks like that here where you would get better than average brown trout because That's right. a lot uh-huh. of Connemara is very similar to parts of Scotland where a lot of the brownies might be a half a pound in some of the lakes. But when you uh, find a lake that you're talking about there, that that's, sounds fantastic. Oh, it's a jewel in the crown, that. And that yeah. one is so, it's so high up and it's a, it's a very steep climb to it. Nobody else will go to it. Uh, that's good. Oh, so you're not driving up to it in your car, no? No, and I don't tell anybody. People ask me when I get these fish, and I just don't tell them. Uh, you're right. So, so, so we'll, we'll post that up, the name of the loch and everything, and, and coordinates. <laughs> oh, so, no, it's top, top secret. Yeah, and rightly so. So listen, one last thing, and what we do on everybody we have on, 
on, we asked them one question at the end, and that is, what is, because you fish, what has been your most memorable fish? Needn't be your biggest, but you, what's the most memorable? When I ask you that, what comes to mind? Well, the best day I ever had, and I was still in my teens, and I had a salmon of 25 and a half and a salmon of 22 and a half. And they were both on a salmon rod that I made myself and a fly that I made from my father's collies. Uh, <laughs> was this on the ring? So, no, that was on a, that was on a Loch Clare, which is further south of Loch Marie. It's part of the U system. Yeah. So all the fish that come in through Loch Marie, they go into another two lochs, which are further south. And that's what I was brought up. <laughs> Found us. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> all right, for those of you who don't see it, I'm holding an atlas in my hand. I can see that. <laughs> And I'll never do that again, I don't suppose. <laughs> yeah, but 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 at least you have done it. Well, that's it. It's a memory. <laughs> Owen McLean, thanks a million for joining us. It's been fascinating just to uh, hear about kind of Loch Marie and, you know, what it was once like, um, the effect of fish farms, the collapse of it. But interestingly, maybe a small little glimmer of hope there in the sense of what could potentially rejuvenate, not to back the way it was, but some life coming back into the, to the loch. I think, uh, and I don't think I'm being too optimistic, I think there is a turning point. Fish farms are not as popular as they were in Scotland, and I'm hoping that will continue. Well, here's hoping the message will uh, cross the water. Well, I hope it will, but maybe I'm too old to change it now. <laughs> Owen McLean, thanks very much for joining us. Right you are, then. Our thanks to Owen McLean for joining us on the show. And don't forget to rate, review, and follow the Ireland on the Fly podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast from. Plus, you can keep up to date on IrelandOnTheFly.com as well as on Instagram. And myself and Tom will be back with another episode about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland. <laughs>